Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're discussing the life of Louis Wayne and how he might provide inspiration for our Call of Cthulhu games. And I'm also pleased to be able to introduce a special guest for this episode, the creator, producer of the actual play podcast, Ain't Slayed Nobody. Welcome, Cuppy Cup. Thank you, Paul. I'm not often called a special guest, so this is a big day for me. <laughs> That's your role today. You know, there might be a few people who are living under rocks that haven't heard about the Ain't Slayed Nobody podcast. Could you tell us a bit about your show? Yeah, sure thing. So I think that on the spectrum of Call of Cthulhu actual play podcasts, we may be closer to a tabletop audio drama. So it is heavily edited, heavily produced music, sound effects, and our main arc takes place in the Wild West. We play Down Darker Trails, but we do play other settings, a lot of stuff with Scott, actually. So if you need more Scott Dorward in your life, I think uh, <laughs> make your way over to Ain't Slate Nobody. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, we already know you don't listen, Scott. <laughs> Before we get into our main topic, what is going on? You're going to be at Necronomicon, I believe, Paul. Yeah, we're recording this ahead of time, of course, but come mid-August, I'll be in the States and attending Necronomicon in Providence, which is the big kind of Call of Cthulhu, HP Lovecraft convention. It takes place every couple of years, and I think first time in three years. So looking forward to being back there. The envy is strong with this one. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> I know you're not going to make it. Oh. Yeah, you're the only one of the three of us who's going this time. The bunch of us went along to the last couple, but yeah, it's only Paul this time. The stars just aren't right. It's not the stars, Matt. It's fucking COVID. I'm not going to conventions while there's this. Yeah, for me, it's me stuck on the waiting list to have my colostomy reversed, and I have no idea when that's going to fall. So Sod's Law says, oh, I'll book my room, I'll have all everything paid out, and then won't be able to go. I hope it doesn't fall. That sounds like it could get messy. That's a story for an episode of Body Horror again, if we do one, trust me. <laughs> yeah, it sure is, yeah. And now on to our main topic, Louis Wayne. Well, long-time listeners will remember from our two great NPCs of history episodes, that's 173 and 179, where we discussed interesting historical characters who might inspire RPG scenarios. We later rebranded this to Strange NPCs and spent the entirety of episode 207 discussing the reprehensible piece of shit murderer Albert Fish. This episode, though, we're keeping to the Strange NPCs format and devoting a whole episode to a much more wholesome but no less fascinating person, the artist Louis Wayne. As an eccentric cat lover with strange ideas about the nature of reality, Wayne is perfect for inclusion in games of Call of Cthulhu. And as we might find out, he has been. Despite his immense popularity in his lifetime, Wayne quickly became a forgotten figure. When he is remembered, it's more so as a case study for the effects of psychosis on art. Happily, this has changed recently with the release of a film about him, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. Some of this discussion also relates to the episode 128 in which we discussed the role of cats in Call of Cthulhu. You mentioned the Albert Fish, you didn't, but you didn't mention the Monkey Glands guy. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yes, Dr. Voronov. Yeah, Fish and Dr. Voronov, they were the ones that I seemed to see the most feedback about online. <laughs> but most people saying, what the fuck are you talking about? They now? just need more monkey glands in their lives. Yeah. Well, I think Louis Wayne is fairly what the fuck, but in different ways. In gentler ways. Who was Louis Wayne? Well, Louis Wayne's father, William Matthew Wayne, was a textile merchant from Staffordshire who was disinherited after converting to Roman Catholicism. He moved to London and married Julie Felice Boiteur, a French textile designer. Louis was their first child, born in Clerkenwell on the 5th of August 1860, and followed by five sisters. 
Louis was born with a cleft lip, which was corrected through surgery, but did leave a scar. In his adult life, he sported a mustache, which I think now people are more aware of his appearance because of the Benedict Cumberbatch depiction of Louis Wayne. And in his childhood, Wayne reported having visions of extraordinary complexity. And he was clearly a bright child, but tended to play truant. And he would spend time wandering around museums and the countryside instead of going to school. I mean, we're given the impression in the film that he thinks of himself as sort of some disfigured, ugly character, a bit like Lovecraft did. But mm. of course, on the other hand, he's played by Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> so it's kind of a hard sell, really. But also, if you see photographs of him, he wasn't a bad-looking man. I mean, obviously, the moustache covered his facial scar, but even without that, I mean, he was, at the very least, average-looking. Hmm. I also feel like it's a requirement that Benedict Cumberbatch has to be in every film that's been made over the last five years. Especially if it features posh English people. Exactly. This would be why I haven't seen many of them. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> You'd love it, Matt, I'm telling you. Initially, Louis planned to become a musician, even writing an opera. Oh, boy. But soon decided that art held better prospects. Yeah, because opera's where all the money is. Yeah. <laughs> He studied at the West London School of Art, becoming a teacher there after graduation. Yeah, that opera of his, I don't believe it survives in any form, but there were contemporary accounts that made it sound pretty unworkable. Even though he was trained in music, it sounds like he had eccentric ideas about the structure and composition of the whole thing. It might have worked as an avant-garde piece, but it certainly didn't seem to fit with the ideas of the time. Could just be ahead of its time, in inverted commas. He could have been Victorian London's answer to Philip Glass. Possibly. So William Wayne, Louis's father, died in 1880, leaving Louis as the family's sole breadwinner. Louis started seeking work as a commercial artist. He made his first sales in 1881 to the Illustrated Sporting and Dramatic News. That sounds very Victorian, doesn't it? I mean, I don't <laughs> know if it's still a thing. I'm guessing it isn't. And then to the Illustrated London News the following year. Both publications were owned by Sir William Ingram, or Toby Jones in the film, who became something of a patron to Wayne. I mean, any film is improved by Toby Jones, in my opinion. But so Wayne, as well as being an accomplished artist just through natural talent and obviously lots of practice and training, he also had an advantage in that he was ambidextrous and was even able to draw with both of his hands at the same time. He could also just automatically write in mirror writing. He seemed to favour his left hand while drawing and painting, but was reported to prefer writing and signing his work with his right. I can draw with both hands too, it's just not very good. <laughs> <laughs> Stick figures all the way. Yeah. <laughs> we were discussing this ahead of time and, and stumbled across the term amber sinister, which basically means you're shit with both hands. <laughs> And this is fantastically portrayed in the film when Toby Jones asks him if he can work quickly and he just gets a pad of paper out and starts drawing with both hands, doing a picture of Toby Jones's character and just sort of throwing at him in like two oh, minutes yeah. and it's all done. But that is a remarkable skill. I've never witnessed anybody working in that manner. Yeah, I don't know if it's something that he did beyond it being a party trick, but it's still neat. Oh, yeah, totally. It's good for cinema, if nothing else. Yeah. Throughout his career, Wayne was exceptionally generous with his work. He was constantly creating little sketches and giving them away to fans and charitable organizations, even when he began struggling financially later in his life. I feel like generous is a bit of a kind term here. We'll get to the other aspects of it, where he was perhaps really shit at managing, well, just <laughs> everything. But this was something over and above that, that he just liked drawing little sketches and giving them away to people as well. Hmm. It's very generous because then they could get rich off of those. Exactly, yeah. Well, apparently later in life, he would actually do things like... Uh, pay for groceries with drawings. He just bartered drawings when he didn't have any money. Didn't Salvador Dali just sign napkins and things in restaurants to pay for the food? It's similar. 
I saw something related, Scott, where he was even in the mental institution trading drawings for pies and things like that. Oh, wow. Huh. You should try that in, if you go to the cafe in New Bradwell, Scott. Well, I can offer to run them a game of Call of Cthulhu if they'll mm. feed me. Coffee for your sanity? Yeah. Just hand them an MP3 player loaded up with the good friends of Jackson Elias. <laughs> the universal currency. Outside of art, Wayne was something of a dilettante. He had lots of wild theories about science, despite having no education in the field, and fancied himself an inventor. Yeah, he's quite a modern person, really, in that respect. So who needs facts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He filed a number of patents, mostly related to bicycles. There's a weird and random tangent. But I think this is one of the things that makes him potentially an interesting character to throw into Call of Cthulhu, which is he did have this... I guess, abundance of confidence in certain areas, well, overconfidence in his abilities, but these wild ideas about electricity and inventions and the way things worked and the nature of reality, particularly later in life as he grew more and more ill, he wrote strange screeds and some of them were published as letters to the editor and if you want to have a character in a game who is going to convey strange and probably wildly misleading information to player characters he could be quite an interesting one in that respect i just kind of imagine him appearing on dragon's den with his latest <laughs> inventions it'd be great give him a pulp weird gadget i think would be fun yeah what would he invent it has to be related to bicycles, right? So some kind of yeah. penny farthing powered by cats. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking if you skip forward a few decades, the cat bus from um, Totoro. Oh, nice. Wayne's early artwork was realistic in its representation, serving the same purpose as photographs would come to do in newspapers. He usually covered subjects like dog and agricultural shows. There is some of his artwork from this time that's available online, and it's worth looking at in the context of what his, his art would become, because it is so markedly different and very kind of mundane and realistic and representational. And it occurs to me, possibly should have mentioned this at the start of the episode, talking about art in an audio medium is tricky. That's what the show notes are for. Exactly. But we'll try to give you some idea of his artwork as we go along because, well, you're listening to this. But if you do want to check it out, then yeah, I'll put some in the show notes. All his stuff is in the public domain now, so I'll put some examples in there and I'll link to galleries of his work. Also, if people aren't aware, there's a thing called the internet, and if you do a search, you can find his art. <laughs> yes, there is a lot of his art online now. A lot. The Wayne family hired Emily Marie Richardson as governess for the younger Wayne sisters in 1883. And shortly thereafter, she and Louis became romantically involved, and they married in 1884. This drove a wedge between them and the rest of the Wayne family, as it was seen as being very improper for someone from a I guess, semi-respectable middle-class family like this to marry a governess. This wasn't helped by the fact that Emily was 10 years older than Louis. All in all, this did not go down well with the Wayne sisters or Louis Wayne's mother. Did anybody else get very strong kind of Mary Poppins vibes at this point in the film? <laughs> I'm getting Jane Eyre vibes right now. That's everything I know about governesses. I was half expecting you to say someone tried a very impressive Dick Van Dyke impression. <laughs> Mercifully, no. Had this been a musical like Mary Poppins, I think that would get mad on board. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was a reason I didn't watch this. I knew it. <laughs> the couple moved out of the Wayne household to a house in Belsize Park. They were given a black and white cat as a wedding present, and they named him Peter. This, at least in the film, is portrayed as a fairly pivotal moment in their lives, or particularly Louis Wayne's life. Considering the number of sketches that he made over the years of Peter, a lot of which can be found online, then, yeah, I guess it probably is. Pets weren't popular at that time, right? So I think Louis Wayne in the film is depicted as not receiving Peter as a pet at first, but more of a, a mouser kind of cat. 
It's cats in particular who were popular at the time. Dogs were okay. as pets, but, but not cats. Well, not long after the wedding, Emily was diagnosed with breast cancer. Wayne would sketch Peter for Emily's amusement while she was ill, and she encouraged him to show these pictures to publishers. This led to his first whimsical cat drawings, A Kitten's Christmas Party, being published in the Illustrated London News. Emily Wayne died in 1887, less than three years after she and Louis had been wed. Louis threw himself into his work, growing steadily in popularity. At his peak, Wayne created around 600 paintings and 1,000 sketches per year, almost all of which were cats. He was fantastically prolific. We see, an, as I said, an awful lot of his work online. There's a huge collector's market for his work. But this is just like the tip of the iceberg. I don't know how many of these pictures survive and how many were lost. But there's just so much, so much. I mean, we could just say a little bit about what the kind of pictures are. I mean, a lot of them, I look at them and sort of think, seaside postcards kind of springs to mind they're kind of whimsical mm. what might be called charming kind of cat pictures slightly cartoony in style would you agree well these early ones were a bit different initially he didn't draw it in an anthropomorphic style he drew cats that looked like cats they were still doing human things but they weren't anthropomorphic mm. but yes it was still kind of whimsical and playful and not at all realistic after Emily's death, Louis became something of a loner. He apparently found it difficult to maintain friendships and had a hard time understanding and managing his celebrity, his finances, life in general. We'll come on to his mental health in a little while, but he's certainly depicted as being rather peculiar in his mannerisms in the film and this ties in very much with contemporary accounts of him that he was affectless and not withdrawn he seemed you know fairly sociable but not perhaps able to read social cues and these days it's very easy to look back at him and say he was obviously autistic but that wasn't really understood at the time and so I think, you know, he was just considered to be strange. His entire family was regarded as being fairly strange. It's always brought up that his sisters never married and the whole family was a little bit odd in both their appearance and their behaviors. And I think that whole thing of falling from grace a bit, tumbling down through the social classes, probably made it difficult for them to integrate with society. Yeah, They weren't where they should be, you know, historically. Oh, that's a good insight. My understandings of British society are, uh, you know, probably really strong, but not, not top of mind at the moment. <laughs> in Victorian London in particular, the class system was vitally important. And a lot of ways, Louis Wayne's life and the life of his family shows a lot of the, I guess, more uncomfortable or stranger aspects of it in that mm -hmm. respect. The whole way that his relationship with Emily was frowned upon and, like you say, his family's slipping down the social ranks. But I guess it's important to point out for non-British listeners that class at the time, and to some extent now in the UK, isn't necessarily a function of money. The Wayne family would have been considered perhaps middle class if they hadn't had to work for a living. So I'm not quite sure where they would have fitted exactly in the class structure at the time. That's interesting, because watching the film as an American, it felt almost inconsistent with the way that they viewed themselves as a family versus mm -hmm. how they were depicted financially. Yeah. Class is certainly a, a very aspirational thing in the UK sometimes. In 1890, Wayne published his first anthropomorphic cat illustration titled A Cat's Party. Wayne wasn't the first artist to depict anthropomorphic cats. It was an established tradition, but he did greatly popularize the style. You know, as an American, I have to bring up C.M. Coolidge with dogs playing poker. Mm. They were contemporaries. I don't know which came first, I suspect. Maybe it was dogs playing poker, which was in the early 1890s, but uh, they were kind of working simultaneously. Mm. 
I don't know who predated the other, but he was from New York. And then, of course, Louis Wayne went to New York for a stretch. So I wonder if they ever actually met. Mm. Maybe the subject of a scenario. You can get Pikmin in there, too. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, nice combo. The clashing of hats, dogs, and rats. There you go. <laughs> yeah, they all team up and hunt down Brown Jenkin. <sighs> in his paintings, Wayne's cats are usually taking part in human pastimes. Do they ever play poker? In the Chris Beatles book, I did see a, a couple of pictures with card playing. Oh, yes, at least they knew how to have a good, real good time. <laughs> Otherwise, they were doing boring things like attending parties, which I could never see as entertaining in any way. <laughs> playing sports, driving cars, going to the doctor. Like, that's fun, says the guy recently out of <laughs> hospital. Yeah, real fun time. Uh, fighting in wars, even more fun. Yay. <laughs> and even being tried in court. For example, during the First World War, he did do sketches, of pictures of cats on the front. There's one of his more famous surviving pictures of a, a little character that he did for a soldier. I think the soldier was actually called Tommy Atkins, and he did this little sketch of Tommy Catkins that is a strange depiction of life on the front. It's very strange. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. I'm never really warm to these things, really, personally. And I think this is probably the time to, to raise this. I think hmm. people who like his work probably are going to like the film. People who aren't so keen on his work may not be so keen on the style of the film because I think the style of the film has the same sort of feeling of charm in inverted commas and whimsy that his pictures do. Yeah, which is a strange contrast with the actual subject matter of the film because the story the film tells is absolutely pitch dark i mean we'll get into wayne's later life as the episode goes on but viewed from afar despite all his success and popularity and so on wayne did not have anything resembling a happy life he was quite a tragic figure in a lot of ways but the film offsets that by betraying it in a very whimsical way. Yeah, the film is constantly driving towards humour all the way through, even with his, you know, you were mentioning his personality, which he may have had mental health issues earlier, but he certainly had idiosyncrasies in his personality. And it certainly plays those for humour. It's kind of constantly striving towards that, which didn't really warm me towards the film. But then again, they've got to sell a Benedict Cumberbatch film so that is probably popular i don't know how other people found it but hmm. that aspect of it didn't actually jar with me at all i thought that the film did a terrific job of humanizing him as a character and i never felt that it was laughing at him i thought yes all right it was showing his foibles and some of the perhaps social difficulties that he had but it always seemed to be in a sympathetic way yeah i'm not saying it was laughing at him i don't know there was just a lot of that aren't posh english people are dressed in uh period dress aren't they funny i don't know that just just winds me up you described the whimsy, Paul. I think that pretty much nails the tone yeah. of the film. So addressing darker issues and, and getting into the, I guess, mental decline of Louis Wayne. But it's always kind of paired with this whimsy, whether it's through the way the, the shots are done or the dialogue or kind of transitioning to jokes. I could see the criticism that it makes his mental struggles simplistic in a way, diminishes them into a likable character trait rather than this deep struggle that he had. But I think part of that's just, you know, you're trying to make a 120 minute movie. You have a lot of limitations mm. there. I think that's an inherent problem with biopics in general, which is you're trying to compress a life into, in this case, I think the film was shorter than that. I think it was about a hundred minutes. Yeah. As a result, there was a lot of stuff that they skipped over and compressed fairly major life events that are boiled down to one image or one scene. And so, yeah, it felt very superficial in that respect, but in the same way that almost every biopic does. Right. I enjoyed it overall. I think that, you know, it hit a few emotional notes that resonated with me. Mm. It's one of those movies, I don't think I would watch it a second time, but it was certainly worth watching once from my perspective. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. 
Wayne is credited with transforming the cat from a working animal to a household pet in Victorian Britain. He was heavily involved with cat charities and his work helped change people's perceptions. And I'd like to ask, is he also responsible for furries? <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't the originator of anthropomorphic animal art. This is true, but... But on the other hand, he did probably do more to popularise the style than any other single person. So in that respect, yeah, I can imagine Louis Wayne is kind of the patron saint of furries. In 1891, Wayne became president of the National Cat Club and served on their committee for the next 20 years. He was also a founder member of the English Cat Protection League and served on the committee for the Society for the Protection of Cats. So, yeah, he was basically involved with almost every aspect of not just legitimising cats, but trying to get them better treatment. Because I think a lot of people, as well as seeing them just as being mouses, saw strays as being vermin almost. And so he was very keen on stopping animal cruelty in general. It wasn't just cats. I mean, cats was his main focus because it's what he was known for. But he was involved with all sorts of animal charities. For all his good works, Wayne also held some eccentric and unworkable ideas about cat breeding, which he would sometimes publish in newspaper columns. As with his opinions about electricity and science in general, Wayne never let his lack of expertise get in the way of his opinions. Uh, I, th I think he also forayed into politics quite a bit. He was a capitalist, wasn't he, and had some anti-socialism artwork. Yeah, he was very conservative. He was very pro-empire. He had some fairly strong political opinions, but it didn't dominate his work. Like you say, it did come into a few political cartoons. Yeah. He got more into the uh, maybe politics and society when he moved to New York <laughs> later in life, uh, which created some other problems. Please tell me, though, when you mentioned this cat breeding there and opinions about electricity, that those two did not necessarily be combined. <laughs> <laughs> There's a pop Cthulhu scenario waiting to happen, isn't it? Electric bast. Are we talking about plugs and sockets? <laughs> well, hopefully just that. <laughs> In the film, he talks about cats, I don't know, at some point always facing north and, yes. uh, I don't know, lightning affecting their patterning on their coats or something. I'm not sure. But yeah, he portrays some, well, semi-delusional ideas. Which were taken from some of his writings. So mm. yeah, this wasn't stuff they made up for the film. Just imagine a Wanian lightning gun where you have this cat that you quickly run back and forward and then it discharges a bolt of electricity. <laughs> With a terrifying <laughs> sound. <laughs> Wayne eventually moved back in with his mother and sisters. In 1901, Wayne's sister Marie was institutionalised due to schizophrenia. Louis Wayne's annuals ran from 1901 to 1921 and were massively popular. These coincided with a period in which dozens of other books of his work were published. A 1921 Pathé news piece on Wayne as part of the Art Celebrities at Home series stated, There's hardly a child or grown-up in the Empire who doesn't know Mr Wayne's friends. Were you three exposed to this work as children? Were you familiar with Louis Wayne? We're not that old, goddammit. Well, I mean, you know, even, you know, his work lived on in some fashion, so I didn't know if you had, like, little tins and things. Now I'm trying to date you more. Yeah. <laughs> Louis Wayne's hard on it. Well, that's a good point. I mean, we'll touch on this a bit more, but Wayne was a pop culture phenomenon, but that aspect of his work fell out of the popular consciousness pretty damn quickly. Even though he died, what, 25 years before I was born, his work wasn't part of my childhood. Even though, say, Beatrix Potter, who was a contemporary of his, her work had survived yes. into that time. So it's interesting how quickly Wayne was forgotten there. When I first learned of him, it was, oh gosh, in the mid-80s, late-80s, as an adult, and... It was purely in light of, well, what we'll come to with his asylum paintings. I'm not going to ask you if his popularity waned. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> ah. 
Wayne's work was everywhere from the mid-1890s to the start of the Great War. In these annuals we mentioned in postcards, calendars, toys, biscuit tins, advertisements, and there were even sets of china that were made with his cats as images on them. And you mentioned postcards. Wayne's popularity coincided with the growth of picture postcards. But his difficulties managing the copyright of his work meant that he didn't see much money from these reprints. And that was a general consistent problem for him with publishers either buying his copyright from him or outright reprinting his work without permission. And he struggled financially even while he was a household name. I mean, he had no business acumen. He had no concept of how to manage his own copyrights. He was obviously a fantastic artist, prolific there, but he really needed a business manager and he didn't have one. He tried doing it himself and it just meant that throughout his life, despite the huge amounts of money that everyone else made off him, he was broke for most of it. This is something that comes up oddly enough in my day job. There's a saying that goes around, which is, there's no such thing as a bad business, but there is such thing as bad management. I think this is one of the things that makes Louis Wayne interesting, because a lot of known artists, when we read about you know, their struggles and poverty, it's because they became famous posthumously or very late in life. And he was actually in financial ruin while he was very popular, which I think is pretty mm. intriguing and unique. And not just very popular, but very commercially popular. Because even where you've got massively popular artists, it's not because their work is getting reprinted as merchandise uh, or as china and postcards or whatever and printed as annuals. It's because their paintings are worth a lot. But here, there was an entire industry built on his work. And it seems like the only person who wasn't making money out of Louis Wayne was Louis Wayne. I think in that Chris Beadle book is where I read that he, you know, those aspirations he had as an inventor and his interests in in that area and electricity, he made bad investments in things he Mm. saw as kind of budding inventions. There was some kind of oil lamp he invested in, but they all tanked horribly. So the bad investments (laughs) coupled with not making enough royalties or or money from his work is, is not good, obviously. He'd have been massively into cat NFTs. Oh, yeah. He's just uh, <laughs> born in the wrong time. Just teach the AI to do Louis Wayne. There you go, Paul. That's your next venture. Uh, <laughs> program yeah. some AI to do Louis Wayne art. I'll just remortgage my house. <laughs> Looking for other sources of income, Wayne traveled to the USA in 1907 to pursue an offer to work for Hearst Newspapers. While the comic strips he drew, Cats About Town and Grim Alkin, were successful, His sometimes, let's say, acerbic comments about American life undermined his career in the US, and he returned home in 1910. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you. Yeah, Yeah. well, I think, again, this ties in with him perhaps not having a great degree of social skills, that Mm. he didn't really have a filter. He was quite blunt, uh, prone to strange ideas. And I think... It's probably not that uncommon a thing where you get someone who is very creative, very skillful, but once you put them in the public eye, they don't necessarily have the personality to sell themselves and it ends up destroying them to some degree. I'm curious, though, whether it was the public that didn't like this or whether it was the publisher. Mm. I imagine some combination thereof, Mm. but yeah, I don't know for sure. The advent of the Great War led to paper shortages and Wayne's income declined steadily as less of his work found its way into print. And then in 1914, Wayne launched a line of ceramic cats, which he dubbed his lucky futurist mascots. And there are a wide variety of these. Mm. There's websites devoted to them and lots of pictures online. And there's a whole section in the Chris Beatles book about them as well. They are really quite striking, and I find it quite interesting that he did seize upon futurism as his inspiration for this. And this line continued until 1922. Unfortunately, like everything else, this didn't make him much money, especially after a ship carrying a large consignment to the US was torpedoed by the Germans during the war. Yeah, that reminds me of a, uh, well, two funny stories, actually, that are on very similar lines. I've often thought about basing a scenario around. 
there's the uh, quite famous story about the shipping container that went into the ocean. I think it's somewhere near the coast of Spain. And floods of Garfield toy phones kept yes. washing up on the beach. Mm. But also, um, again, similarly, it's a shipping container that went overboard, but also containing hundreds of thousands of rubber ducks. Mm. Where there became this whole like global organization put together to try and trace where the ducks would end up around the world when they followed the various currents and they were like found on every continent on earth and even Antarctica. And so yeah, thinking that somewhere down at the bottom of the sea there are hundreds of thousands of these porcelain cats. Can you imagine if they were found down there by deep ones and they considered they were perhaps religious idols dropped down by the humans of the surface <laughs> and developed this whole religious practice around these Louis Wayne futurist ceramic cats? Nice. That's perfect. If they like the ones in the film, then I think the bottom of the sea is the best place for them, <laughs> <laughs> in my opinion. What do you know about ceramics, Paul? I don't know, nothing. Shh. <laughs> Did any of these survive? Do you know these ceramics? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's quite a collector's market for them. Good. It was just this one big consignment that went down, but he did continue making them for the best part of 10 years. What Scott's not saying is the fact that some of them were retrieved from the Deep One cargo cult. <laughs> Around the same time, Wayne fell from an omnibus he was boarding and suffered a serious head injury. One popular story is that the bus swerved to avoid a cat, of course, and that Wayne asked about the cat's well-being upon regaining consciousness. Aww. In 1917, Wayne wrote and animated two short films, The Golfing Cat and The Hunter and the Dog. Hang on, he's switching to dogs. The latter featuring a cat named Pussyfoot. In an article for The Guardian in 1960, Sidney Denham credits these films as influences on both Felix the Cat and the animations of Walt Disney. Again, someone else making a shitload of money off his back. Wayne's mental health hit a crisis point in 1922. Following acts of violence against his sisters, Wayne was certified in 1924 and admitted to the pauper's ward of Springfield Hospital in Surrey. Now, we're coming to the stuff that Wayne for a long time was best known for, which was his mental health. And obviously this is the classic Call of Cthulhu period. So I have, I mean, might as well bring this up now, used Louis Wayne as an NPC in a scenario. Particularly it was a scenario that was set in Bedlam, or the Bethlehem Royal Hospital at the time that he was a patient there. Certainly one thing that I was very keen on when I was including him there, was not ascribing his mental health problems to the mythos or anything like that. As far as I'm concerned, his portrayal and scenario should, at least to some degree, reflect the reality of the situation. And it's one of these things where I think taking it in a, a fictional mythos direction would be disrespectful would cheapen the actual reality of the situation the horrors that the man genuinely went through and just sort of saying oh it's because he saw the owl of the tip would make me deeply uncomfortable i agree with that and i think that now especially in modern times there's so much mystery and even controversy around what happened to louis wayne later in his life and all the different theories about causes of mental decline that leaving it ambiguous in the scenario and not using mental illness to frame him as some kind of malicious actor is probably the best approach. Mm. I, I like the way you did it in Catland, Scott. I thought that you handled that well, even though we were, we were our usual, you know, bastard selves. <laughs> I think there's a general kind of almost like romantic notion to talk about artists and their mental health issues. Mm. Yeah. It somehow endears us to the artist more. I think particularly with artists, I don't know why or quite what the reasoning behind that is, perhaps. Yeah, despite the fact that for the individuals in question, what they went through was hellish. I mean, it certainly was for Louis Wayne. Yeah, or Van Gogh. Or even Richard Dad. I can't see any reason not to treat their circumstances with uh, kind of sympathy and respect. Maybe it stems from our need to assign some kind of explanation for everything. Why is this artist a genius. And then we like to ascribe that mm. to some kind of um, 
neurodivergence or mental illness. It's something that's very popular. Maybe Van Gogh is the most classic example. Yeah. We see it a lot with writers as well. And I think fundamentally that, yes, all right, there are an awful lot of neurodivergent and mentally ill people who create works of art of various kinds. But I think in very few cases is their their mental condition the source of all that. In a lot of cases, it's something that they have to overcome in order to create. It may sometimes give them interesting perspectives Mm -hmm. that they might not otherwise have had, but it's certainly not helpful in any way to look at mental health problems like that as being some kind of magic source of creativity. It's usually quite the opposite. I wonder if there's kind of a perhaps misplaced notion that it shows them as being more sensitive individuals for whom the world was too much and mm. you know they couldn't cope with it but they channeled it into their art and that kind of romantic notion i mean it's perhaps not wholly misplaced but it seems a common theme to me dan Ryder, an acquaintance of louis wayne's encountered wayne living in squalor on the pauper's ward at springfield and Ryder then started a public campaign to raise funds to move Wayne somewhere more pleasant. This was so successful that even the Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald and H.G. Wells, got involved with the campaign, Wells making a radio broadcast and Ramsay MacDonald writing a newspaper article. Even Nick Cave got involved, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> That was one of the weirdest bits of the film to me, having Nick Cave playing H.G. Wells. That was an interesting bit of casting. The modern print of the Chris Beatles book has a Nick Cave quote across the top of the jacket. All right. Apparently, uh, Louis Wayne's his favorite artist. The funds raised by this campaign allowed Wayne to move to Bethlehem Royal Hospital, which is now the site of the Imperial War Museum in 1925. When Bethlehem relocated to Beckenham in 1930, Wayne was transferred to Knapsbury Hospital near St. Albans. A number of Wayne's asylum paintings are part of a permanent exhibition at the Bethlehem Museum of the Mind at the Bethlehem Royal Hospital in Beckenham. I used to live in Beckenham. In fact, in the part of Beckenham where the museum is located, which is the wonderfully named Elmer's End. This was around the same time as I learned about Wayne, got interested in his stuff. My flatmate at the time, Carol Tyrrell, introduced me to his work, and that was the start of my obsession with Wayne. But for some reason, I never realised how close the Bethlehem Royal was to where I lived. I mean, it was about a 10, 15-minute walk, and I really regret not going there and going to this exhibition. That reminds me, I think all of you've written scenarios that are kind of based in places where you've lived or at least nearby. And also you've written scenarios that are you've probably never even been to, I'm sure. So which is more uh, fulfilling or exciting or is it different going through the, the two different setting styles, things you're familiar with and things you have to learn a lot about? I think it's more fun writing about places that you know. I mean, writing about what you know is like the stereotypical advice, yeah. isn't it, that everybody's given. It's just nice being able to sort of picture those places and reinvent them and uh, sort of play with with what you know. I don't know if Matt might have a different opinion because Matt loves doing research. He's, <laughs> he's kind of weird that way. And also then going to visit the places that you've chosen to write about before you've put pen to paper, so like what I did with the Dunwich scenario, yeah. I'm somewhere in between. I've written some scenarios in places I've lived, but it's weird. I don't necessarily draw upon my experiences there when I do so. It's just because I've got some frame of reference as to what that place is like. But I'm generally just as happy researching places and trying to find somewhere interesting. See, I I run games in places where I've lived, but still know nothing about. So (laughs) if I try to pass myself off as a Texan, everyone laughs at me. (laughs) That's another story. Well, imagine how we feel then <laughs> if we try and write about America. Trying to run DDT, yeah. <laughs> Wayne's later work is often cited as evidence of the progression of his mental illness, but it's strange and sometimes disturbing renditions of cats, often in abstract styles. This is hotly contested, however, with a number of psychiatric professionals ascribing the change in styles to normal artistic expression rather than his illness. I mean, there is an interesting YouTube, which I'm sure Scott will link to in the show notes, where there's mm. a, 
I think he's a, a doctor or a psychiatrist talking about Louis Wayne. And he's saying that these works look more like a, something like out of an acid trip. They certainly look like they wouldn't be in the wrong place if they were like on a Hawkwind cover or something like that. You know, they're kind of like quite trippy looking. <laughs> My sense of the whole thing in regards to the mental illness and the, the art that he painted later in life was that art, or at least the contemporary perceptions of Louis Wayne were rooted in this or anchored in this uh, uh, kind of mundane commercial work. And I think that that made the late in life paintings mm. kind of a more dramatic difference uh, so that people felt like they had to ascribe that change to something. But I mean, really, if you've worked for decades doing commercial work, drawing cats, and now you're institutionalized and have lots of free time to paint whatever you'd like, I think it's natural to think you would experiment and and do interesting things and work with new patterns and styles. So I don't know that you have to mm. suggest that, oh, it's schizophrenia or something like that that's making him draw these patterns. I think it could just be kind of creative liberty. I think artists do what they do and critics and commentators make up theories. Yeah. Basically, that's their job. So let me tell you my theory now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quoting Paul Zazan when I say that, but that was what he said. <laughs> Dr. Walter Maclay popularized Wayne's asylum paintings as indicative of psychotic deterioration, a concept now rejected by psychiatry. He presented eight pictures that he found in a junk shop in Notting Hill, creating a timeline that he claimed showed the progression of Wayne's psychosis. This series of paintings and the progressions is absolutely everywhere on the internet. If you Google Louis Wayne, it's one of the first things you'll come across. And for a long time, it was people's first exposure to Wayne. It was certainly my first exposure. I, it was in some book on psychology. They had this as an example of how psychosis affects art. It starts off with the fairly comical anthropomorphic representations for which Louis Wayne was known, and then goes through these more geometric psychedelic uh, shapes, some of which look like they've gone through a kaleidoscope, some of which, like you said earlier, Paul, look very acid-trippy and become steadily more abstract. I mean, the problem with these is that the timeline that he presents for a start isn't actually accurate. He constructed this assuming that this was the order in which the pictures were created, and he was wrong about that. So almost everything about that is wrong, but it's still so firmly wedged in the public consciousness that people still believe it to this day. Yeah, a quick scan of YouTube will reveal this to you as well. Oh, God, yes. Wayne's later kaleidoscopic geometric pieces seem to owe more to the Turkish-style carpets and ecclesiastical fabrics his mother designed when Louis was young. He also created some wildly psychedelic paintings, which look like they could have come from the 1960s. So, whichever one of you said he was just ahead of his time, I think maybe, maybe you're onto something there. I think there was an element of that. Your kids are going to love it. Mm. And I think also... I see it in his landscapes as well. And this is one thing I thought they did a great job of in the film was where they'd got film of him and his wife, particularly in the landscape. They would intensify and change the colours in the image and make it like one of his paintings. And yeah, I'm not so much into his cat paintings and pictures, but some of his landscapes I think would be fantastic illustrations for the dreamlands. Oh God, yes. Yeah. Um, so there's one quote I found just before the show called Forest Edge. If you check that one out, I think it's got a very dreamlandsy feel, very uh, kind of dreamy colours, really, uh, really nice mm. use of colour in them. The later art is much more interesting to me. It's kind of fun to look at. I don't think it is, mm. it's not jarring. Like you're not looking you know, into the mind of, of someone who's deteriorated and trying to kind of figure out what happened. I think it's fascinating. It's very skillful and it doesn't have that commercial feel at all. So mm. like we've kind of all said, people just like to explain away changes in people and that initial paper, Scott, on the stages of psychosis, I think you know, it's really hard to undo something like that. It's kind of like the retraction yes. nobody sees. Yeah. It's the same thing. This, this kind of you know, steamrolled into the explanation, and now it's hard to peel that back. Even the film, I don't think, does a good job of peeling that back, necessarily. 
No, it doesn't try to. Yeah. I guess it's not really the film's job to do so, but yeah, it is an incredibly popular misconception. Since I know nothing about you know, England. One interesting thing that I found was that medical records from institutions are available after 100 years after the the person's mm. death. So we can have a follow-up in 2039 and talk about the release <laughs> yes. of, of Louis Wayne's medical records. We can, but then of course, medical science has moved on a lot as well. And our understanding yeah. of psychiatry has changed and developed. So but it will still be interesting to see that. And I was surprised that those medical records were still under lock mm -hmm. and key, that those weren't accessible so many years after his death. Mm. I kind of thought they would be, but no. There is perhaps a little more evidence of Wayne's illness in the subject matter of some of his later drawings, depicting cats in distress or acting against each other in furtive ways. His writing is the strongest evidence, however, filled with disordered thoughts and strange delusions about psychic emanations and the nature of electricity. There's one particular picture of his, and I will put it in the show notes, from around 1930, which I think typifies this better than anything else. It's one of my favourites of his, but it's not a happy picture. It's called The Fire of Mind Agitates the Atmosphere, and it depicts a couple of cats one of which seems to be exerting some kind of psychic or electrical influence over the other, and there's nothing obviously disturbing about it, but on the other hand, particularly knowing what he was going through in terms of mental health, there is something about this picture that certainly raises the hairs on my neck. There is still controversy about the nature of Wayne's mental illness. The diagnosis at the time was late-onset schizophrenia, which isn't accepted as a real thing these days. Schizophrenia almost always manifests in late adolescence or early adulthood. A more widely accepted theory was that Wayne was autistic and that this may have led to psychotic symptoms later in life. Certainly, the descriptions of his eccentric behaviour in early life could relate to autism spectrum disorder, and in very rare cases, autism can manifest as psychotic symptoms in late adulthood. Another less popular theory is that Wayne's illness was caused by toxoplasmosis, which is a disease caused by parasites found in cat excrement. It is almost unknown for the disease to have such extreme effects on people unless they're immunocompromised, however. Toxoplasmosis kind of came to the forefront a lot more in the 1980s mm. with the AIDS epidemic because there were an awful lot of immunocompromised people who suddenly ended up becoming very ill with toxoplasmosis. But if you have a normal immune system, it's a fair bet that a lot of cat owners have some degree of toxoplasmosis and will just never realise it. The psychiatrist Professor Graham Yorston had suggested that Wayne's later decline in mental health could have stemmed from a traumatic brain injury caused when Wayne fell from the omnibus in 1914. Apparently, it is not unknown for such injuries to lead to psychosis many years later. I didn't realise that could happen, and I guess that's something that we could bear in mind for Call of Cthulhu, where people do end up with major wounds and head injuries and so on, but it's probably not the kind of thing you'd you'd want to bring into a game. That topic is very commonly talked about now in the US because of American football injuries with concussions mm. and things that players who've you know had dozens of concussions how they behave later in life and things that happen to them and mental decline. So it's kind of at the forefront here. Mm. Am I right in remembering that there have been a number of acts of violence that have been ascribed to people's traumatic brain injury resulting from football. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There was a combination of violent acts and, and suicidal behavior um, have been ascribed yeah. to that. There's the movie with Will Smith, Concussion, that deals with this and the NFL's response to these types of criticisms. And there's also Aaron Hernandez, mm -hmm. who was found responsible for murdering multiple people. There's a lot of talk about the effect that head injury had on, on his trajectory as well. So. We can firmly say being hit on the head isn't good for you. You heard it here first, folks. Try to avoid it if you can. Wayne continued painting and drawing until the end of his life. The last contemporary book of his work, Louis Wayne's Great Big Midget Book, was published in 1934. Wayne had a stroke in 1936, but started working again once he had recovered. 
He finally died in 1939 at the age of 78. Again, I kind of figured watching the film, I didn't really know his life story. So I kind of figured he probably died in like middle age or something. Mm. So he actually had, you know, lived to a ripe old age. Yeah, it's just that the last 20 years of his life, well, the last 15 in particular, were, were pretty damn rough. Yeah. Louis Wayne has maintained a cult following since his death, even long after his fame had dissipated. There has always been a thriving collector's market for his work, and he does pop up in popular culture on occasion. Recently, of course, his fame has been revived by the electrical life of Louis Wayne. But even before then, I come across him every now and then just in strange places in popular culture. One of my favourites is there's a song by Current 93 uh, called The Blood Bells Chime, which is about Louis Wayne. It's, it's actually a weird mashup of Louis Wayne and Arthur Macon. It's just a lovely little song. And it did introduce me to a phrase which David Tibet, who wrote the song, had picked up from an interview with Louis Wayne that had been published back in the 1890s or 1900s or so, which was, Catland, sometimes called Pussydom, is the first place we come to. We are there before we quite know where we are. And of course, that's why my scenario was called Catland, sometimes called Pussydom. Which I modified for the actual play. Yeah, no one ever uses the full title of it. <laughs> it's a very American thing, I think, that thing about pussy, though. But. Mrs. Slocum would approve. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I guess, yeah. Is there a Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds Louis Wayne song? There must be, right? If he's. Uh... You think, right? Yeah. No, I don't know. Oh, give him time. If people are interested in learning more about Wayne, we recommend The Man Who Painted Cats by Rodney Dale and Louis Wayne's Cats by Chris Beatles. The Chris Beatles book, if you want to get a very nice sampler of the, the art and the ceramics, it's a good resource. There are some fantastic collections of his artwork out there. Our friend Rena sent me a copy of uh, Catland Companion by John Sylvester and Anne Mobbs a while back, which is also fantastic. It is a book of artwork rather than a book about Louis Wayne, but it's got some fantastic examples of his artwork in there. And particularly thanks to the popularity of the film, there is now this resurgence of interest in, in his work, and you can get all sorts of collections of his work now. But as we've mentioned, it's all in the public domain as well, so there is so much of it online now. Now we can make money off of his work legally. <laughs> So, as far as Louis Wayne is concerned as a, a strange NPC in Call of Cthulhu, like Albert Fish, one of the things that lends himself to this is the fact that he does span two of the key Call of Cthulhu periods, the 1890s and the 1920s, though clearly he's a very different character in each one of these. In the 1890s, if the player characters encounter him, he is an up-and-coming commercial artist, he's got some strange ideas about electricity and inventions, he's very involved with cat charities and animal charities, and, you know, maybe a strange person. In the 1920s, they encounter him then, he's got to be a very different person. Yeah, I mean, for me... In terms of games, I think it's as much about looking at these people as a vehicle to learn about the period. Mm. I find just the history can be quite dry, but having somebody like this, obviously you're seeing the period through a lens of this individual, but I think that's a personal story I think is often more interesting. So whilst I wouldn't necessarily use Louis Wayne in a scenario, not that I wouldn't if it seemed suggests itself as a good fit i don't see myself using him offhand but just reading his story or watching his story brings an aspect of the period alive to me because there is an awful lot of stuff that comes out of that i mean there's the obvious stuff about art and the changing role of cats but there's an awful lot of stuff about class and commercial pressures mm. and just the realities of of life for working people at that time I was thinking about the Critical Role one shot, The Shadow of the Crystal Palace, which involved a cat club. Oh, yeah. Louis Wayne would have been a fantastic cameo. 
for that scenario. Mm. So anytime you want to introduce a cat club, which should be what, one out of three scenarios, <laughs> it'd be great to use Louis Wayne as a, a contributor or the president of the cat club and add some color to the, the history of the, of the story. And not only does he bridge the periods, he bridges Britain and America mm. Um, mm -hmm. as well. So you, know, you can put him in various places, various locations. But going back to the idea of him as a pulp character, then, yeah, I mean, all these strange inventions of his as well, then I think you could use him, even if you took all the stuff that he's well known for, the artistic side of things and his interesting cats, if you took those away, he serves as an interesting model of a, a sort of a almost classic absent-minded inventor type character with scattergun interests, perhaps no real expertise in anything but a willingness to throw himself into creating stuff without really knowing what he's doing. And in a pulp game, that kind of character is just amazing. Well, I mean, it's the right period, so you just get him going to America and teaming up with Tesla, <laughs> in a, you know, and creating like crazy pulp lightning inventions and so on. Oh, we're back to the electric cat cannon, aren't we? Well, I mean, if you wanted to be inspired by these inventors, particularly in a pulp game, then I think, you know, a mashup of those two or various other individuals could be great fun, particularly, you know, given his interest in electricity. I can see Tesla and Wayne being mortal enemies because Nikola Tesla famously fell in love with a pigeon. And what is the mortal enemy of the pigeon? The cat. Can you imagine if one of Louis Wayne's cats killed Nikola Tesla's pigeon? Well, this is an even better scenario because <laughs> now you've got two adversaries. <laughs> I like that. I think one thing with studying interesting people from history is just to get little character quirks. So just the, the drawing ambidextrously with both hands at the same time. Mm -hmm. If you put player characters into a scene and somebody's doing that, they're immediately going to be interested and suspicious and asking questions. So if you're trying to add color to your NPCs or uh, some interesting background, studying figures like Louis Wayne, just, I mean, a lot of the things we talked about could be incorporated into a different NPC to add some eccentricity and interest. Oh God, can you imagine if you had a Call of Cthulhu investigator come across someone who spoke in an affectless way, could draw with both hands, kept talking about all these strange ideas about electricity and psychic emanations and these strange inventions and so on. They just assumed they were a Yithian, wouldn't they? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> or some other kind of plot dispenser. What would you do if you met that person, Matt? Probably blow them up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there you go. I knew it. As opposed to any other NPC <laughs> you meet. Well, being a bird person, if he's obviously, uh, say, in love with the cats, then yeah, I'm, I'm siding with <laughs> Tesla on this. Blow the son of a bitch up. So if you're looking for an end game with a Matt scenario, just throw a Louis Wayne lookalike into the, <laughs> into the scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's got a pencil in both hands, Matt. <laughs> Kill him. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you'd let people know. Whether this means leaving a review somewhere online where you get your podcasts, mentioning it to people on social media, or training your cats to meow our names outside people's bedroom windows at night, <laughs> we'll do the rest. Have you done that with your cats, Scott? Oh, yes. <laughs> My neighbours love me. Now, Cuppy Cup, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this show and ask if you have anything you'd like to tell our listeners about or promote or whatever you'd like to talk about. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to plug the show. I am Cuppy Cup. I produce, edit, run and play in games for Ain't Slayed Nobody. We are an actual play podcast. You can find us on any podcast app or at ain'tslaednobody.com. Of course, our, our main arc is called Y'all of Cthulhu and takes place in a down darker trails setting. So if you like highly produced actual plays, season two is like super highly produced. If you like it to be a little more raw, then start with season one. But we also have tons of Scott Dorward content. I, I feel guilty <laughs> plugging our Patreon, of course, but our main arc on Patreon is run by Scott. It's a World War Cthulhu London arc. And 
I play a terrible player character in there, as I always do when Scott <laughs> runs games. But it's a lot of fun. We were like 25 sessions in, I think, Scott. But we've published 10 or 11 episodes by the time this releases. We're 25 sessions into what was written as a one-shot. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those. But on our public free main feed, we have Fairyland by Scott and we have Unland by Scott. Both are really fun three-episode arcs. And Scott ran Catland for us, which is also on our Patreon, which is, I feel bad saying the URL, but it's patreon.com slash ain't slate. If you have to hear Catland, <laughs> then jump in there and hear Scott's depiction of Louis Wayne, which I think was tasteful, but it's been a while. So I don't want to promise that. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> and if you're listening and you found this show from Ain't Slayed Nobody, do all the things that Scott asked. Look into the Good Friends of Jackson Elias Patreon. I think this is the best resource for Call of Cthulhu material on the internet. So, you know, embrace it. Join the community. It's a great place to run games. Dig in. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right. Well, you've been listening to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. A farewell from me. Thank you and good luck out there. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Southwark, 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 Southwark. Do you say the R? Southwark. Uh, fuck you, Scott. Please include that.